Thanks, guys, and hello again, everybody. We are going to dive in today to um, what I think is our third to last or second to last, must be third to last, uh, sermon in a series we've had this summer called Big Questions, and uh, we have been preaching through the overseers, pastors, elders, uh, the preachers of this church have been preaching through questions we've gotten from the church, things that they've, uh, you all have wanted to hear a sermon on, and so if you're new to our church, it's what you're jumping into here, uh, sermon-wise. The question we got uh, this past week, I think uh, Peter alluded to it, um, but the question has to do not directly with the creeds, but I'll talk about that in a little bit. The question specifically was, what is the lowest common denominator of Christian belief? So um, and it's a great question, a very nuanced question. In fact, uh, just to unpack this a bit, and this is the spirit of what, I, what we interpreted the question to be, and other related questions were uh, or could be, what, what is considered basic Christian doctrine? Or what should all Christians believe? Or to use the language that uh, we sometimes use here at Hiawatha on this matter, what is major doctrinally and what is minor uh, doctrinally? So again, great question. On a, and I would get this a lot actually as a pastor. Objectively, people just wonder what, what do Christians believe? What, what am I supposed to believe? Are people interested in the faith? Kind of getting ready to cross that line. What's, uh, what's Christianity really all about at the end of the day? But also on a pastoral level, people wrestling with trying to trying to believe, helping, asking God to help their unbelief, but wrestling with almost believing too much or feeling like they have to believe more than they really do to be saved. And so it's a great, very nuanced question, like I said. And I'll take just a couple of minutes here to make some initial remarks before diving headfirst uh, into the question. But realize this week as you unpack something like this, and uh, you, you have to make a difference between saying, what do I need to know to be saved and what should I consider basic Christian doctrine? It's kind of like a classic Venn diagram there. They overlap, but they're also kind of different entities at the same time, the latter being the more substantial list. So, for example, in the Bible, after Jesus is raised from the dead and the church is born, people immediately start to ask the apostles directly, what should we do in light of the fact that Jesus is alive? What should we do with this knowledge that you're preaching to us? It's, it's, it's theological history. We're confronted with it. What do we do? Common question you see a lot in the book of Acts, for example, and just smattered throughout the New Testament. Or, what must I do to be saved? And their answers are quite simple. And a couple of just uh, short examples here. In Acts 2.38, uh, Peter replies to that question, that first question, what should we do in light of the fact that Jesus is alive? Or what should we do, do with this information? He says simply, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, believe in Jesus, repent from sin, turn from your old way of living and be baptized. In other words, join a church. And, and note the fact here that this is, this is not repentance unto moralism. Moralism is amazingly absent here. It's simply repent from your old way of living and turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. So it's turning from your old way to a person to believe in that he accomplishes your forgiveness, that he's earned it, that he's fought a battle for you, and you're a beneficiary of it. So repent, turn, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts 16, later in the story, is even simpler. Uh, this is the Philippian jailer speaking to Paul and Silas. He simply asks, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And belief here is not just intellectual assent, to be clear as well. well. We'll talk about this word a little bit more later on this morning. But 
when belief is mentioned, it's not just intellectual assent, it's deep trust. So Paul is saying here, trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Believe he's able and able alone to save you. I think in James 2 it says the demons believe in the sense that they understand the facts. They believe that Jesus is alive. They understand that he is God. What makes you and I different from demons? See, we put our trust in. We believe it in an, in an active sense. We trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and say, that's my life preserver in the middle of the ocean. The demons don't do that. So that's what makes one of the many things, there's other things to say there too, but makes us different uh, in our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ to be, to be saved. So there's simple statements like that in the New Testament, but at the same time, the guys who gave these very simple uh, sermon-like responses to those questions were the same guys who wrote First and Second Peter and Romans in the New Testament, which if you're unaware are extremely substantial discourses on the Christian faith. Very difficult to understand even at times, but things that these guys, Peter and Paul, are essentially saying Christians need to grow in their knowledge of as well. And so one thing we have to say here right off the bat, and I'll, I'll come back to this to close in, uh, in a little bit here, but one thing I have to say right off the bat here is that, is that ecumenicalism, the idea that we should only believe what can be agreed upon by other believers, is not the goal here. Ecumenicalism, at least and there's, there are healthy forms of that, but there are a lot of unhealthy forms as well. Ecumenicalism, or some forms of it, the idea that we should only believe what you can agree on with global uh, Christians from every denomination and strain of Christianity. That's not the goal, but rather unity amidst diversity. Majoring on the majors and minoring on the minors. So basic Christian doctrine then has to go beyond what do I have to do or believe in to be saved question to including a little bit more without going too far into the minor doctrines of the faith and making too big of a deal out of them, but still going into them. And we'll talk about that this morning. So to get back then to the question at hand today, uh, one of the best places to point someone who asks this question, maybe a lot of you are wondering this or have wondered it this morning, other than, of course, the Bible, uh, are the early church creeds. The Apostles' Creed and the more substantial one, the Nicene Creed, which we'll look at a little bit more this morning, but we sang through the Apostles' Creed, so that one's done, most of it. Anyway, uh, the Nicene Creed we'll read here in just a second, but the creeds are, are summative of basic Christian doctrine, things that either need to be believed in to be saved or just basic Christian doctrines that must be upheld as subservient to that greater doctrine of God or that greater doctrine of, of salvation. So just a little bit of history on the creeds then. Uh, the creeds were early 1st to 4th century uh, documents circulated throughout the global church of the day that served as doctrinal statements of faith that brought unity to the church, harbored healthy doctrine, and thwarted heresies when they arose. The Nicene Creed dates to A.D. Uh, 325 when a regional church council met at Nicaea, hence the name of the creed, uh, to systematize some things theologically that were already being widely upheld by the church because the church had their Bibles, but they were being contradicted by certain uh, popular heretics of the day. So, and, and to this day, many church communities, Peter mentioned this before that last song, many church communities recite the creeds regularly, if not every Sunday. And though we don't do this here at Hiawatha as a part of our regular uh, gatherings, uh, we have said before, and I'll say it again this morning if you're wondering this, uh, we are very creedal just adjectivally. We're very creedal in how we do things. Our statement of faith 
our member statement of faith here, our main statement of faith is creedal in the sense that it's just basic. It's flowing from the creeds, and it points back to it. And in one sense, it sounds like we're bragging, but it's not meant to be that. It's not creedal in the sense that it's more expanded outline. We explain more. The creeds are very simple. You'll see this in a second. They're very simple statements that were meant to be memorized and, and kind of built back into people's minds for the sake of what do I need to believe on a daily basis. But they're also not explained that much. And so we'll do some of that uh, today. But what is nice about a more prolonged statement of faith is you get like the creed type things or statements, but with more of an explanation paragraph. So if you're wondering what that is as part of our church, if you're brand new uh, especially, wondering what we believe it's on our website, or just talk to us. We can pass that on uh, to you as well. Uh, but, but again, we're very creedal here uh, as uh, basically Christian, we say, in the sense that we're upholders of the Apostles and Nicene's uh, creed. And past that, we'd say we're evangelical, we're reformed in certain ways, but those things get more specific on things that not all Christians would necessarily align 100% with, uh, nor even have to. Depends what you're talking about, but not, nor even you have to. Uh, to be to be Christian. So uh, creedal is very, very basic. Are you a Christian? The creeds are great for that. So what I want to do then is uh, read the creed in its entirety, the Nicene Creed. I'll make just a few comments about some particulars of it. Again, this could be a 13-week sermon series. Uh, probably goes without saying. But uh, we'll just give a very uh, big picture of you on a few things here to get back to the big question. What's the lowest common denominator of Christian belief? All right, so here's the creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. All right. So back to the question, uh, the lowest common denominator of Christian belief, again, a lot of things here we won't say, but if you boil this down into five, kind of five major things going on here, we have, uh, we have what's, what's followed. The first is, and arguably the most important, is the Trinity. So when you read this, you can note the Trinitarian structure to it. Uh, there's, there's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but with we believe statements before it. So we believe in one God, the Father. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. And so that's actually an important thing to note uh, in the creeds and especially in the Bible, is that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are called the Lord. They're called God. So to be Christian then, to be distinctly Christian, is to believe that there's one God 
but he exists eternally in three persons. So that the Holy Spirit is, for example, and Jesus too, of course, but the Holy Spirit is God as well. He is worshipped, but also he is not God the Father or God the Son at the same time. So classic paradoxical definition of the Trinity that all Christians believe. There's only one God, but he exists eternally in three persons, and each of those persons is fully God, but they're also not each other within, uh, within the triune Godhead. 1 Peter 1, 2, just an example of how you see this just kind of bleed out of the apostles and the New Testament authors when they write, when they encourage the church. It's just commonplace to see them kind of in triplicate form or in Trinitarian manner write about the Trinity to encourage the church. So these are the, uh, th- these are the first words you see in the book of 1 Peter, for example, when the church is greeted, so to the church, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, the Son, for sprinkling with his, with his blood, and, and he goes on. But just to mention Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit. Very common Trinitarian way of speaking you see all over the place in, uh, in the New Testament. But, but to note that they're persons. So they're not modes of the one God. They're distinct persons who together form uh, the singular uh, triune Godhead. So, in other words, and just to give you guys a little bit of framework here, these next five things, this is the first of five, but what I want to do is just briefly mention, this is basic Christian doctrine, here's where it comes from, from the creed and from the scriptures, uh, lots of things we could say about it, but just basically, but then also say, here's what heresy is contradicted, or here's what heresy is refuted, here's what's the opposite of this statement, that Christians can, can decisively not believe, that they, they should not, cannot believe, or they, or they, they at least... Uh, maybe cease to become Christian, but they especially just live or believe in a very non-Christian uh, kind of way. So when we, when we place that, uh, that paradigm here, within the Trinity, uh, the, uh, the idea is Unitarianism is the heresy. So Christians are not Unitarians, which means uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and Unitarian Universalists are not Christians. Though they claim the name for themselves, they are uh, not biblical Christians. And then this means that their churches as well are not actual churches either because they're not made up of actual, actual Christians. Now there are many reasons why belief in the Trinity is basic Christian belief, most of which we actually won't cover today. There's just simply no time. But one of the biggest reasons, other than the Bible just teaches it, and it shows us how much of a relational being that God is because he exists forever in relationship with himself and it prevents us from believing that he created the world because he was bored or because he was lonely or because he needed you or needed me. The Trinity prevents us from that uh, as well. Aside from all of that uh, is that it presumes that Jesus is fully divine. So it's, it's one of the big reasons why we uphold the Trinity is it presumes that Jesus Christ was not just a man but he was eternally existing uh, with God the Father before he was born into the world as a human being. And it's to there, then, that we now turn. So, first is the Trinity. The second uh, lowest common denom- denominator aspect of Christian belief is the sons- sonship of Jesus Christ, human and divine. So, some key terms here regarding Jesus are, from the Creed, are eternally begotten, meaning eternally kind of proceeding from God, not made. So Jesus was not created at one point in, in history. Uh, he, he eternally existed 
with God the Father, eternally proceeding from him, yet at the same time, made man. See that? So not made, yet made man through the Virgin Mary. See that paradox there? So, so God the Son was not created, eternally existing with God the Father as God the Son, eternally proceeding from him, yet made a human being at the same time. So all Christians need to believe, and do believe, if they're Christians, that Jesus proceeds from the Father eternally as the Son, yet was made a human being 2,000 years ago as well. So he's both fully human and fully divine, paradoxically. Not 50-50, not 75-25, 100%, 100%. Or as it's said by many before, historically and in a contemporary way, not ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. So not ceasing to become God, he became what he wasn't, a human being. John 1, 1 and, and verse 14, I'll skip down a bit here for the sake of time, but uh, gets at this, it says, In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, as we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So one of the uh, competing heresies then that the church sought to refute in the 4th century when the Nicene Creed was written, and this certainly has existed throughout all of history and exists today in certain forms as well, was the idea that Jesus was more human than divine, or that he was a created God. Uh, He was created at one point, he was God-like, a little bit divine, but more human, and he did not exist forever, he did not exist in a begotten kind of matter, eternally proceeding from the Father as the scriptures teach. It's one of these early heresies that the, the creeds then sought to uh, systematize and then ultimately uh, what, true doctrine and then refute these types of things. This was called uh, Arianism in the first century because a man named Arius first espoused it. So he gets a name tagged on that one forever. That's great, good for him. Uh, it's kind of a sad thing, bummer. A lot of these early heretics actually weren't bad guys. They were just trying to understand and, but then they realized, or other people realized for them that what they wrote down was not biblical, it was heresy. And then, heretic, you know, forever in church history books, done. But anyway, Eris uh, is one of those guys. So today, uh, today then, this is a marked difference for, from Unitarians. So Unitarian, to be clear, not Trinitarian, believing in one God, one, the one distinct person, God, versus Trinitarian, one God in three persons. It's a marked difference from Unitarians and certain forms of liberalism that in one way or another believe Jesus to be more human than divine or maybe not divine at all. And there are other camps as well throughout history that have, that have believed he's more divine than human and kind of downplayed his humanity, but much more common historically and today to believe that Jesus was alive, he lived, he was a guy, he influenced people, but he certainly wasn't God. And the, the big danger with, there's a lot of dangers to that, But the big danger with embracing Jesus' humanity over his divinity or at the expense of his divinity is that the atonement, the cross, what he did there is at stake. It messes with how we view Jesus' purpose and mission. Once you mess with the Trinity and the fact that Jesus is both human and God fully, once you mess with that, you, you mess what's related to that, and that is why he came into the world at all why he died, what his mission was there, purpose. Did he rise from the dead at all? Is that important? All that stuff is affected negatively, negatively 
if we do not uphold the Trinity and relatedly the sonship, the, div the divinity, and the humanness of Jesus Christ. And that's actually where we turn now. So the third thing is, and I'll borrow some of the words right from the creeds here and kind of summarize it. There's a lot more said than this, but for our sake, he was crucified. On the third day, he rose again. And in this, he ushered in a baptism for the forgiveness of, of sins. So Christians then believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but more precisely, that it was for our sake that he did it. That's huge. People can believe that he, he died on a cross, and many do. You can even believe that he rose again from the dead. That actually happened in the world, but not be Christian if you don't believe it was for your sake. That he did it for you. That it's personal. So for our sake, he was crucified. It wasn't an accident. Planned. Part of his purpose and mission. He was born to die. And he was born to be raised again on the third day afterwards, as the scriptures prophesy and look ahead to in the Old Testament and teach. And, and through that, he brought in a baptism, a washing, a cleansing for the forgiveness of, of our sins. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died, here's the key phrase, the creedal phrase, for us. He died for us in our place. 1 John 4 says, In this is love. Here's love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atonement, uh, sacrifice of atonement or propitiation, wrath-deterring sacrifice for our sins. So it did something. It, it, it fought a battle for us. It wrought a salvation for us. It wasn't just an historical event. It was theologically historical. And so the reason why this is so important is not just what it says, but what it doesn't say. You'll notice here then uh, the marked focus on the cross and the empty tomb. The creed does not say, we believe in Jesus, a really good guy who lived a really good life that we should strive to emulate. Not in the creeds. Not with the early Christians rallied around and, and spoke to each other and sung to each other. Not present at all. Not a guy to copy, a guy rather to cling to and believe in. That, that, that type of theology, that copy the way Jesus lived, which is a form of liberalism, is completely absent from the creeds. Do you notice that? And sometimes you don't, if you're not asking the question, what's not there? Well, what's that's there, it's most important, but also what isn't spoken that maybe a lot of Christians believe today, or we've added on to these things. And there are things to add on, for sure, things that the creeds don't touch, but there are things that we shouldn't add on at, uh, at the same time. Jesus did live a perfect life. That's important to note. Christians believe the perfect dies for the imperfect. But the center of Christianity is not our copying of Jesus' life. That's not creedal. That's not basically Christian. It's not our copying of Christ's life. He's not primarily an example to follow. He's a substitute. He's one who died and who was raised for us, for the forgiveness of sins. That's the center. So it's nothing about moralism or example here, but rather uh, substitution. So sin is in focus rather than um, our life following. And that happens later on. Only after we're filled with the Spirit, though, can we join with a community of, of believers, a church, and resemble him. It certainly happens, but only as something secondary, uh, not primary. His great act of obedience on the cross is uh, what, we, what we cling to and hope for. All right, so for our sake he was crucified. Third, fourth, is the church. 
Uh, the creed says, we believe in one holy Catholic, and this is lowercase c, which means universal. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic, meaning a sent uh, church, sent community church. So the church, an assembly of Christians, unified and sent, again, Catholic and apostolic, is at the core of the Christian faith. Isn't it interesting the church says we, the, the creed says we believe in the church? Do you say that? Other than just reciting the creeds, which is great as well, but is that at the heart of what you believe? Do you believe in Christ? Do you believe in God the Father? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Do you believe in the church as well? One of the first things that happens when the first converts post-resurrection are saved in Jerusalem at Pentecost 2,000 years ago is they get together to hear the gospel over and over again, sing, take communion, share stuff with each other, and evangelize the lost. It happens instantly. Acts 2.46 says they met together every day. In Ephesians 3.10-11, it says, this is speaking of God, God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, kind of petty language there, but he's just saying that his intent, God's intent is that through a gathered community of Christians, that's how Jesus Christ's purpose, Jesus Christ's mission is made known to the nations and even the demonic and angelic realms. It's shouted forth. It's not through individuals. It's through a gathered a community of Christians who are in local manifestations of that, universal and local, uh, that show forth uh, the glory of God through, uh, through the gospel. So, Basic Christian doctrine, lowest common denominator, you can't take this out. Christians have to believe in the church. There's no such thing in the ancient creeds, or more importantly, the Bible, of Christian individualism. It's, it's one of the heresies that the creeds refute and do not allow for. You could, so again, you could even say that, that, that Christian individualism is heresy. It's not Christian. You can't believe that and be a Christian at the same time. God saves us, like we said before, talking about center church, and actually, one of the cool things about doing something like this and on a, a church commissioning day is to rem remind ourselves and all the Center Church crew of this that God saves us always into a community of faith. From our individualism into a community of dependence. From the world into the church where he dwells now uh, most pronounced. So just a great question for your heart. This is a big deal today too. I'd say all these things are big deals uh, today, but one just big thing in the 21st century American church is, is not believing in the Holy Apostolic and Catholic Universal Church. We believe in the Trinity and the Son of God and the, the atonement, and that's great, but I don't believe I have to believe in the, I don't have to actually be a part of a church. It's not that important. That's not what the creeds say. It's not what the Bible says. Uh, to not believe that is to be very uh, non-historical, non-traditional, non-biblical. You have to fight that. And just ask yourself, would I even say this? Do I believe in the church? And if you don't, just course correct. God's saying that he is saving you into a community of faith. It has to occur. There's no such thing as rote Christian individualism. In fact, in extreme forms, it's sinful. All right, fifth and final, and let's go through this one really quick and just make a few final comments here, but... Uh, is looking for and longing for the resurrection of the dead and the new world to come. Uh, a couple of verses quick to support this. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, saying, Paul says, if, if the dead are not raised, then Christ hasn't been raised either. And if he has not been raised, Christ, a Christian's faith is futile 
and uh, you are still in your sins. Hebrews 9, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Basic Christian belief, lowest common denominator of Christian belief, is that we believe in a bodily resurrection. Another, so Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 15, because there are Christians in the first century saying, we really have to believe in a bodily resurrection. Can't we just believe that our spirits are okay in heaven? Uh, or that the resurrection kind of already happened and not everyone really participated. There was messed up theology going on in this particular church. So Paul writes back and says, bodily resurrection is core Christian faith stuff. To not believe it, that, that means you're saying, well, then even Jesus didn't rise if there's no resurrection. And then you're still in your sins. Your faith is, your faith is futile. But bodily, this is distinct Christian stuff, by the way, too. This is not, this is not something that other religions share with us. It's a very robust view of resurrection. We don't believe that we're raised into heaven and our bodies stay rotten in the ground, our, our bones turn to dust, and that's it. If that's the case, death wins. And everything Jesus said is ridiculous. It's, it's throw the whole thing out if that's the case. The whole thing goes if that's the case. But God is victory over death as well. He's stronger than it. He speaks to graves and to dust in the ground, and it forms like that Ezekiel 37 passage that Spencer read before. He speaks to graves and dead bodies, and they actually are, this is why Jesus was risen as a human being, to show that we too will, will have an experience like that in the future if we cling to him. He's the first fruits. He's bringing us like the wake behind a boat. He's kind of pulling us behind, out of death and out of the grave behind him. He's, he guarantees that we will have that, that victory because he's died for our sins and death, which always follows that as a, as a punishment for sin. He's overwhelmed that as well. So Christians have to believe in a resurrection of Christ and also ours spiritually now and physically in the future. But also, uh, basic Christian belief, this is maybe one out of all the things I've said before today, uh, maybe second to the church thing or maybe even in place of that, that you weren't thinking would be basic lowest common denominator stuff. But this is creedal. This is very basic and very biblical from Hebrews 9 as well. And that is looking for Jesus' return. Waiting for him actively. And so the, the, the distinctly then non-Christian beliefs that are implied, and I kind of already went there a little bit with the resurrection thing, but it helps to flip these around sometimes and look at, the, look at the competing viewpoint or the contrasting thing that's implied to really get at what's, really what's said. And that is the distinctly non-Christian beliefs implied here are not believing in a bodily resurrection, just that heaven's the goal, heaven is our home, our spirit's in heaven with God in the clouds, it's where we're headed, distinctly not Christian, uh, eternally, but, but rather that, again, that a new earth, a new world, as the creeds say, is our home. That's what's good doctrine. But also the practice of not actively looking for and waiting for Jesus' return. The practice of not actively looking for and waiting for Christ's return. Christians at least basically do this. And it's natural for most believers, and if it's not presently for you, it's okay. Just talk to God about that and ask for a heart change that would make you want to do this. But Christians pray. Christians say, it'd be better today, Jesus, if you came back than all the good things that have ever happened in my life sandwiched together and just kind of eat that. It's like, you are better. I want you to come back. And we long, we believe he's coming because he said he was. You know, he's not a liar. We believe he's coming back visibly, physically from heaven to establish a new, a new earth, a new kingdom on this earth. 
with us and glorified, raised bodies to be with him forever and ever and ever. He'll wipe our tears away and overwhelm death for us. No more pain. or All our shame's gone too perfectly forever and ever. So, so basic Christian doctrine, believing in the resurrection of the dead and actively, proactively with your church, uh, longing for and waiting for his, his return. All right, so a couple things here then uh, in conclusion. <clears throat> to be clear, God does not say anywhere in the Bible, know the creeds perfectly, just to be clear. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, nor does he say that we all have to understand the deepest and most mysterious parts of each of the creed's lines. Nor does he say that you're saved based on how well you understand these things. But he does say and imply that the explicit rejection of anything we talked about today or anything else in those creeds or related doctrines, the explicit rejection of these beliefs is distinctly unchristian and makes someone uh, not a believer. So he, what, what he does say then, rather, is believe in my son. Know him. Know that it's for your sake that he died and was raised. Know that I have a plan for the church. Know that I'm coming back someday. Wait for me, for I am coming. Another key phrase here, too, up here is the idea, the creedal idea. This is also from uh, Galatians 3, this uh, exact phrase. You can go back one, actually. Uh, one Lord, one baptism, uh, one faith. Basically, what's being said there is it's one of those places, again, you've got to kind of hyperlink and say, well, what does the one mean? It means unity, but it also means there's only one way. There's only one God, one Jesus, one baptism, meaning one salvation, one faith. There's only one way to God. So basic Christian belief, lowest common denominator, there's only one way to be saved. And that's the name and power of Jesus Christ and the baptism of forgiveness that he alone ushers into the world. So, so God invites us to that and to think, am I a creedal Christian? Am I a biblicist? Am I believing the right things about Jesus? This is one of the biggies right here. Just believe in God. Believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Believe in the Trinity. Believe he's the only way to be saved. Believe in the church. Believe he's coming back. It's that basic, basic, basic stuff. Know it, love it, recite it, memorize it, sing about it, unpack it in community through uh, through the scriptures. But if there's any uh, secondary encouragements that I give you guys today, uh, it, it is this, and I mentioned this to begin, unity amidst diversity. Unity amidst diversity. So, in other words, make the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that it's for you and me that he was crucified, make that gospel your hill to die on. Uh, the story of the triune God incarnating himself into human flesh and the person of Christ being crucified for your sake, rising again, establishing his church and promising to come again to glorify his saints and destroy evil and to bring heaven to earth forever. Make that your hill. Make that the thing that you're willing to die on, that the essence of what you communicate to Christians and non-Christians and your own heart daily uh, and and, and major, on, major on that. Then, after that, love each other across minor doctrinal differences. So major on that major creedal thing we're talking about today. Uh, believe in the minors, but love each other across those uh, differences. And don't make them majors if the scriptures aren't saying make them, make them major. I'm going to read uh, one paragraph here from our elder statement of faith. This is a, a more precise statement of faith we have just for our uh, pastors. 
and elders to believe in, which uh, is a public document. If you want that, you're sure welcome to it. Let us know. It's not online. But it's something at the very end uh, of everything, we, we say this. We believe that the cause of unity in the church is best served not by finding the lowest common denominator of doctrine around which we can all gather, but by elevating the value of truth, stating the doctrinal parameters of the elders at Hiawatha, seeking the unity that comes from the truth, and then demonstrating to the world how Christians can love each other across boundaries rather than by removing boundaries. In this way, the importance of truth is served by the existence of doctrinal borders, and unity is served by the way we love others across those borders. So know a lot. Uh, know the fact that the Bible says just believe in Jesus and you're saved, and know the book of Romans really well. Memorize that sucker. You Use both, but then major on the majors, and if they're minor, believe in them, teach them, promote them. We, we have perspectives on pretty much everything biblical and theological and philosophical at this church, but we've also kind of backed up and said, what do we require members to believe? What do we require anybody to believe to be saved, just to be basically Christian? We've kind of had tears there, and I think for us as individuals, having tears is the most healthy way. But not to say that ecumenical idea of, I'm just going to believe what I can agree on with the global church from every strand of Christianity possible, but rather for the sake of unity, for the sake of love, for the sake of God getting glory, for the world looking at the church, seeing people very different across denominational boundaries and saying, they're linking arms. They're on the same team. They love each other. They believe different things about these minor things, but they're not burying the lead of the fact that Jesus was dead and now he's alive. They major on that. They believe that. They cherish that. They sing primarily about that. It gets them up in the morning. They pray through that. They pray they know it better. They value it in the hill of that gospel more, more than anything else. And it screams to Christians and non-Christians as they witness that from the outside of life that, that Jesus is, tr is the truth. He really is the one Lord. He's the one Lord who brings the one faith and one baptism, the only way to be saved from our sins uh, into, into the world. So, so believe and then have unity uh, amidst diversity with people on the minors that you uh, disagree with on those things love each other and have unity there uh, but before all of that believe know your scriptures really well grow in your knowledge of the faith from all its beautiful facets and angles uh, but have those healthy tears uh, as as well we pray for us god thanks so much uh for a chance to uh, I don't know, nine years we've done this, but just to at least on a surfacey level to preach through some of these creedal points. Uh, thank you for the creeds. Thank you that you worked primarily the writing of the scriptures, but also uh, helped the church to find unity uh, through creedal statements and songs and hymns, things that reminded the church constantly of what was basically uh, in a creedal manner Christian uh, so that they could refute heresy and know what they distinctly cannot believe, what they need to be protected from, what they might be enticed to believe but cannot believe because it's not truth. And so, God, I pray in the same way we would know our scriptures well. Uh, we would know uh, Jesus Christ and him crucified ultimately alone. We would know he's the son of God who became human. We believe in the triune Godhead. We believe in the church, the Holy Spirit, his empowering of the church for love and good deeds. And we would look to the skies. Every day we look to the skies and pray, God, may you come back today. Make haste, my beloved, and remove these interposing days that stand in between us uh, because you are ultimate 
Everything else is secondary at best. You are ultimate, and uh, you are winning over. You are winning over lost sinners, your enemies, uh, by being just amazing and beautiful before us. So, uh, thank you for calling us to yourself, not to a life of um, moralism, which all the other religions of the world basically do, uh, but rather the scriptures say we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, who for us was crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. We believe in repenting unto your name, unto you unto a person rather than unto a really good life full of kindness. That comes through your spirit too. That's not what the scriptures say is primary. Not what the creeds say is primary, but rather you and, and, and your work. So God bless us today as we respond and, and celebrate all you're doing here uh, in the last nine years, a new church plant, and ultimately celebrating uh, the salvation you give us through your son. In Christ's name, amen.